Hello and welcome to Traeger Method Podcast, episode number 74. I am your host, Jason Traeger. My guest today, Christopher Robin Sutton. Chris Sutton, bass master general, multi-instrumentalist. You know him, you love him. To know him is to love him. You know his work with Chain and the Gang, The Dirt Bombs, The Gossip, COCO, Dumb Narcotic Sound System. That's when I got to know him. He talks about his first band, Engine 54, ska band from Olympia. I think when Engine 54 recorded at Calvin's, I was living there. I'm pretty sure I was, yeah. When he was telling stories about that recording session, I felt like I kind of remembered that whole thing, but he tells that story. Talks about the enormous influence Calvin has had on his life. You'll hear all about that. IPU, his his awakening at the International Pop Underground Festival, etc. It's a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed having it. Chris has been a supporter of the pod for a long time, a booster, and I'm so happy to have him be a part of it. We're the first of many, as we say at the end of the episode. Appearances, that is, of Chris on the pod. We talk about his new cassette, You Brought Me Back from the Dead. You know, I, I mentioned all these groups that he was in, these combos, but here's a lot of, uh, this is a collection of his, his solo work, mastermind stuff, you know, going through the hard drives, pulling off some gems and uh, sharing them with the people, 1998 to 2019. It's great stuff. You really hear... Chris's taste in this taste of dub, of mod, of garage rock, 60s punk, you know, all the stuff that you know Chris for. It's all here. No hair metal stuff. He talks a lot about his uh, love of hair metal growing up. 80s glam metal. None of that on this, but uh, maybe it's in there somewhere if you listen closely. His inner Rudy Sarzo, his inner Billy Sheehan. Those were his first bass influences. I love that. Okay, I should mention later in, I mean, towards the end of the conversation, there's a very brutal edit that I just don't try to hide. I do a little break there and I, I mention it. So that 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 is the result of this conversation um, being that we're friends sitting in his basement talking. My, my podcast mind flew out the window and my friend's freeform talking took over we ended up talking for i don't know two hours about matters existential and it's just way too much and it was mostly me talking honestly and i was like well i don't want to no so uh i just hacked it out and tacked on the end and uh, you know maybe it's not the most artful editing but hey it had to happen so and I could boil down what I say in those two hours to this. Who are you when you're in between thoughts? That's it. That's the entire, uh, that was that two hours distilled to that. Just ask yourself that question. Who are you in between thoughts? That's it. More words don't always equal more understanding don't always equal more expressive power 
especially when those words are talking about that which cannot be spoken of. Here's something I can speak about, the city of Lacey, Washington. Chris is from there. It's a city that is attached to Olympia, Olympia, Tom Water, Lacey. They're really one metro area. Lacey, Washington, as Chris points out in the interview, is kind of the strip mall style area, geography of nowhere America. Business areas designed with the car in mind, you know, car-centric development. Long, wide roads with businesses, tons of parking lots near the freeway. Local businesses intermingling with corporate boxes of various kinds. You know the place. Any pedestrian you might see on the street looks sad and vulnerable. You know, when you build the environment for machines, the environment doesn't look very human. So anyways, the city of Lacey at some point decided, let's try and humanize and create a a sense of space here with public art. So, you know, when you do public art, it's always going to be, you know, let's do something abstract. Everybody can agree on it because it's nothing. Or they go the other direction. Let's make it real straightforward so everybody will like it because they know what it is. And that's what Lacey did. And they put in these sculptures, these bronze sculptures of like 1950s looking white children flying kites at various especially busy intersections with big smiles on their faces. And it just looks, I always laugh because I see these kids and I think, you know, if there was really a kid near this street flying a kite, well, A, they wouldn't be smiling, and B, they would probably be the victim of a high-impact hit-and-run or something, you know? I guess the intended effect of putting those sculptures there is to lighten and brighten one's mood. Look at those bronze children having such a good time. Ah, I remember that, having a good time but I'm sitting in traffic. All around me is the tawdry, meaningless, consumerist landscape. There are no people. The people I do see are insane, homeless, elderly, disenfranchised youth breathing in the exhaust, the dust from tires. Did you know that tires, the decomposition of car tires, creates just as much damaging particulates as the exhaust pipes of cars? That was a little fun fact I didn't know about until recently. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Tires are just constantly degrading, giving off toxic dust. In all the talk, we, we do talk a bit about Olympia. He asked, Chris asked me early on about uh, you know, what my thoughts are of why Olympia was such a vital place in the 90s for music and still today. And he mentions, you know, the downtown core. That, that's a big thing with Olympia. I mean, Olympia's downtown, like most downtowns, or it has some serious rough edges, a lot of empty buildings. It's, it has its challenges. It, it definitely feels like 
sometimes when you're downtown Olympia, you're like, wow, you know, 50% of the people down here seem to be really struggling with mental health and basic accommodations, all that good stuff. But Olympia has a really nice downtown. It's a vital walking. Like that cannot be underestimated with what it was like back, you know, when, when at the time we that Chris and I talk about a lot, um, that 90s Olympia era, having a little compact walkable downtown with nice storefronts, streets where cars move slowly, there's parks. It's a human scale. It's built, the downtown of Olympia was built with the human form in mind, not the automobile form. And that stuff makes such a huge difference. And maybe I've talked about it on the podcast before. I don't know, probably. When I was uh, in, I don't know, the 80s, I found a, 90s maybe? Probably 80s. I found a book um, called The Geography of Nowhere. And that term has always stuck with me as the descriptor for this American style of... uh, car-based development geography of nowhere it's by james howard kunstler is that right kunstler i think so a book just made a big impression on me as a young person because i was always drawn to the city because i split my time my parents of course were divorced like all good 70s parents and I split my time between suburban dads and urban moms, always. That was where I was going. And the, the suburbs, I was always trying to escape for just that reason. There's nothing to do. You have to walk 10 miles just to get to a Burger King. And then you get to the Burger King and you're like, well, why am I here? You get to a city, you go down to the U District, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's people everywhere. There's tons of stores and things to do and see, and I can walk, and there's buses you can get around. That's where it is. That's where the culture is, because it can, not that you can't, you know what I'm saying. You can have culture in the strip mall place, and it's cultures everywhere. It's like a weed, you know, it's going to always show up. But the richness that you get, the, the functionality is what it is in the urban environment. That's why it costs a fortune to live here. I don't know why it didn't then. A lot of factors. I can't ex- analyze all that right now, but uh, yeah. But I do think all this can be traced to Los Angeles because Los Angeles was the blueprint of this kind of culture. And it was 100%. You've seen who framed Roger Rabbit. That's all true. It's 100% tire companies, fossil fuels, car manufacturers. Let's dismantle the public transportation, put everybody in cars, and build endless freeways in all directions so that we can maximize profit for shareholders. Man, everything comes back to capitalism, man. It's just a flipping bummer. You know what's not a bummer, though? Music, friends, love, peace, acceptance and gratitude thank you so much for listening to the pod for supporting the pod patreon traeger method well it used to be called the anchor app uh spotify i i I produce this podcast i have produced it in the past on the anchor app now i'm producing it on spotify for podcasters the other day i went to do a podcast episode and uh 
went to my anchor. It was like, you've logged out. There's, it's now Spotify for podcasters. I'm like, okay, great. Innovation. Thank you. It took me three hours to log in again, try and figure it out. Anchor is fine. Just one word. Anchor. Anchor app. Let's improve it and call it Spotify for podcasters. That's catchy. Oh, I'm so mad. But anyways, I figured it out. Because you're listening to this pod, obviously I figured it out. So thank you again for supporting the pod, for listening. If you like it, you know what to do. Tell a friend. I'm so proud of myself. I got a whole bunch of conversations already recorded, consistent episodes coming your way. They're good ones, like this one. I guess that's as good a place as any to introduce the conversation. So let me do that. Please enjoy my conversation with Christopher Robin Sutton. (laughs) So, Chris. Oh, my God, Jason. You're here. I've been waiting for this. Thank you for having me in your beautiful home. Oh, totally. Oh, so happy to be in the basement with you. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, man. I'm glad I made it. It's very cool. You know, um, I have to say, and I've told you this to your face, but... I'm telling um, it to my face right now. Exactly. I'm telling it to your face. We're in the room together. This is not on Zoom. Nope. The app is on Zoom. The recorder. The recorder. Yeah. There's a stark difference (laughs) as we we discuss. What were you going to say to Uh, my face again? But uh, what I was going to say is, uh, you know, as a as a person who loves podcasts and now I work in them, um, trigger method is, is my favorite podcast. You're, are you just saying that? I'm not just joking. And it's for a variety of reasons. It's, it's not like, I mean, the content itself is really, really good. But on top of that, it's very personal. It's a very personal podcast to me because you're interviewing people that I care about, uh, people that I know personally, uh, and honestly, people that I've wanted to even, like catch up with. Like, like what's Tay been up to? Like, I think about him often, and now there's there's a conduit where he appears, and I can listen to him talk about himself and stuff that he does. Sean Kelly, uh, Quitty, Jared Warren, you know these amazing people that you know, I, I grew up with in town, we both know personally. And um, it's just great to, to hear what they're up to, like hear where they're at in their lives, and you know, how they continue to do stuff and live. And so it, it's been very, it's convenient in this way. And during pandemic, when everybody was isolated, you know, my, my life was pretty much my job, my family, you know, and my dogs. And you know, my dog walks were listening to you, like kind of going through your experiences, interviewing people that you know, interviewing people that we know. Uh, so it's just been a delight, you know. It's very much custom tailored to our, our friend group, but yes, I hopefully the audience is well, I know it is bigger right. than our friend group, but right. Well, I'm a big, big fan of like genuine content, and this is Trigger Method is, is definitely a, a genuine. You know, and as far as like, you know, podcasts in general, it's like they're trying to talk to you about something or explain something to you or influence in, in some sort of way. And this it was made specifically for me. That's what it feels like. I love that. You know what I mean? Like, and even like the stuff you talk about, like existential stuff, like self help sort of things, it's all just kind of on just where my headspace is, you know? And there's, 
you know, the more and more I travel, the more and more I live outside of Olympia or get older, there is, it is like a community. There is a specific thing about Olympia as a community that just doesn't, hasn't existed anywhere else. I mean, people have tried, there's little pockets that kind of come and go, you know, all over. Of course, there's like progressive college towns and stuff like Champaign, Illinois and Bloomington, Indiana. There's these little oasises, but, um, you know, Olympia has just been this continuous thing. And it's something that comes up when I travel all over the world, wherever I've been, Japan, France. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool to be proud of a part of that. And then to have like, you know, a product that uh, kind of represents that in, in a genuine way. It, uh, it's much, much appreciated. So, oh, so. well, that means everything to me. Yeah. Yeah. You're Thank doing you. a great job, man. It's awesome. Thank you. I, I love that. I mean, that is why I started it. I've said that before on the podcast. You know, obviously, people who've been listening since the beginning know that it started because of the pandemic. Mm. You know, like I need an excuse to talk to friends. I'm not just going to call people. I right. don't know why, but. <laughs> You know, right. There's right. just a lot of people that like you you need to schedule a time to hang out. We know some really interesting people. Yeah, you know I, mean? I mean, it's one of the benefits of a life in art and music. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it's not it's not a thing like, oh, a podcast for your friends. It's like, oh, he started a, you know, a lawn care business or whatever. It's like, no, these people are these there's really incredible artists and people that have changed people's hey the lives. lawn care scene might be amazing if you just get sure. deep on it I'm sure, sure exactly but i think like it's more than than like kind of a slice of life kind of thing i mean you know lawn care is very valuable <laughs> yeah. it's a very valuable industry <laughs> uh, i understand that but i think that the crux is that like just people that we know just friends that we know in passing just a part of our group they're all very interesting and yeah absolutely. amazing in these individual ways so yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the it's the true uh, benefit of the artistic life. As far as I've been able to muster, I can't think of anything that I've gotten more from the artistic life than my friend group and yeah. all the amazing people I've known and encountered briefly or in depth mm-hmm. over all that all these years. It's it's the thing. So now you get to this age and it's like, yeah, you start reflecting back right. on it and and you start, you know, telling up all the people that aren't here to tell the story anymore. Oh, yes. And you yes, start definitely. thinking, dude, that could be any of us. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's good to sort of have something perpetual like this and, you know, get people involved with it. I mean, that's really great. And I think this is you. This has led to you, you're doing another project, a similar thing where you're interviewing... The Olympia History the Project. The Olympia History Project, Yeah, right? that's not my project. I'm just participating in oh, it. Oh, right, right. But, right. Um, but yeah, and a lot of people are involved in that. And that's, that's a cool thing, too. Absolutely using the skills i guess i've developed some skills interviewing <laughs> yeah mean, you learn something in the course of two years doing for something. sure yeah definitely yeah definitely for sure do you have you ever thought about why what led to why there was such a concentration of that type of energy like especially in the 90s and the early 2000s or the 80s i'll, I'll include that you're talking olympia you know, olympia specific or even like the northwest you know i mean there's well i've thought about it deeply doing this project i mean and that's something that everybody i've spoken to um there's certain threads that come up a lot and it's essentially the ones that i can identify are evergreen state college yeah you know, it, this is the thing that makes Olympia this magnet and has, you know, since the 70s. Sure. Um, you know, just this free-form college, completely unique educational model out in the woods. 
drawing people from all over the country, all over the state who have different ideas about things. So that's huge. But again, like, you know, Evergreen, that's great. I mean, and th- th- you're totally right about that. But it's Evergreen's not even an Olympia. No, I mean, it's out, It's just outside. Like, it's like... But it's a, it's, it's the magnet. Separate, like, so many things you know, in Olympia right. were, you know... But th- that's just one part of the story. Right. Because so much of it is also the 90s being this time where underground was still underground. Mm-hmm. The cost of living is a huge thing. Yeah. The fact that you could, back in that time, live in Olympia, pay $50 a month rent if you needed to, mm-hmm. you know, work two days a week and live have a place to practice with your band, have a place, you know, this can so you got the total accessibility and time that's available at that mm. particular um, era. That's one of them for sure. Uh, the Northwest, you know, being the rainy, dark, damp place that you're indoors so much of the year. Houses have basements, you know yeah. what I mean? Where there's shows, there's bands, there's um, people are indoors, you know, doing things. That's a big factor. Um, that I have come to hear many people talk about. Yeah, the the group house type situation, the the inexpensive aspect of it. Yeah, just that just that perfect balance of the weirdness that's brought into the town, and mm-hmm. then all the local people, the local kids that grow up having access to this, so, you know, um, this cultural hotbed. So so you have that combination of all the townies and the outside people coming in. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think made Olympia, and I don't know why all this, these kids were so cool and interesting. All, you know, the Tumwater and Olympia. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm from Boise. You know. Tell us about that. Where and, where did you where did you grow up? Uh, well, I mean, I was born uh, in New Jersey, um, but like my mom was in the military, and then my family is from California, so she had me. We moved over to California, and then she was part of the like. 1980, 79 to 81, there was kind of this migration, like, of people, or th- that's what they say, like, historically, they say there was, like, sort of this move from California, Californians moving up to to uh, Washington because of the, um, you know, cost of living or whatever, and so my parents moved to, I mean, I lived in Olympia specifically for a year, but then we moved out to Lacey, so, um, but there wasn't, I mean, Lacey, there's no... It's not a very creative place. It's very strip molly out there. It still is, for the most part. Uh, so people who don't know the Olympia layout, there's Lacey just to the north of Olympia, Tumwater just to the south, and Olympia in the middle. And the three together form the greater kind of right place. But they each have their own distinct kind of sure. feels. Yes. Lacey, like you described, was kind of the strip molly yeah. place. Tumwater's kind of the rural country-ish, mm-hmm. redneck-ear and Olympia is the state capital, Evergreen right. State College. Like the downtown. The downtown, you know, you know old and, style downtown. When I was a kid, I mean, everything's really grown up now. I mean, that I-5 corridor, you know, going from Olympia to, you know, probably north of Seattle is pretty much one town. There isn't really a break. I mean, when I was a kid, it, there wasn't really a lot out there. I mean, there was still, where Fred Meyer was, it was a uh, drive-in movie theater. So, and Fred Meyer showed up there, which was like the hugest thing at the time when Fred Meyer showed up, like you got a Freddy, like everybody showed up, like you know, like Fred Meyer's like, is a like, big grocery store kind of <laughs> yeah. general store, right? Right, yeah. and like it's a strictly kind of Northwest kind of you know franchise or whatever. I don't. It started in Portland, and then but it's, yeah, it's big all over the Northwest. Now. Yeah, you don't really see them outside of this area, but um, but when that showed up, and I mean, I, sort of to just 
uh, illustrate like how kind of like podunk <laughs> was in Lacey at the time. Like the Fred Meyer being the huge thing, like spotlights coming out. Like I think my middle school girlfriend at the time called me from there. Like it's so fucking huge here, man. You got to come here. You know, it was like such a huge deal. So that's just, you know, just kind of how it was out there as far as like, I mean, the my connection to Olympia didn't really happen until probably probably middle school, my freshman year. I, I mean, it, it's really about the International Pop Underground Festival, really. Tell us about that, how, that's, what that's my connection. what that meant to you. Um, pretty much everything. I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, the fact that um, even probably sitting in this chair talking to you is is really just about that festival in general. Um, as far as me being there, it was completely on a lark. So up until that point, like I was an MTV kid. My family, like when cable happened, we were all about it. They got the channel. So we had Nickelodeon, MTV, all that stuff. And we were pretty much watching TV all the time and absorbing all the stuff. And I was really was like an MTV kid. How old were you when MTV came out? Well, when it came out, it was like 81, so I was like seven or eight, and I, I do remember like really early broadcasts of it, so I don't know if we were, because like it first, the first ever, it started like at midnight, like sometime in, you know, 1981, so I, don't, I doubt I was there when it popped off, but, you know, all through the 80s and all that stuff, like, you know, we always had the TV, like, you know, Michael Jackson, like, videos that were happening, Guns N' Roses, all of that stuff, I was all really up on it. And at the time, be, up until under, the International Pop Underground Festival, like, I was really into glam metal. I was a really huge metal and glam fan. Like, what bands? I mean, oh my god. Like Motley like, Crue type stuff? Oh, oh, well, no, but all of it. Like, yeah. like Motley Crue, Poison, like, stuff like Pretty Boy Floyd, um, enough is enough. Dokken, enough's <laughs> enough. Uh, like, you know, anything, like anything that came out. So there was uh, me and my friend Dan, which the story is going to uh, center around me and my friend Dan Hancock. But we would, um, I was obsessed with Metal Edge magazine. And the thing about Metal Edge magazine is that there was mostly pictures. Yeah. Like, do you remember that? Yes, I do. Like, there was Circus that had, like, the articles, yeah. and we got that. But Metal Edge had all the pictures of all the dudes, you know? And so my wall was just plastered with all of these crazy people, <laughs> like Lynch Mob, like, yeah. I was super fringe, you know? George Lynch, not the Ice Cube Project. Not, no, yeah, <laughs> definitely not the, no, no, this is like... Not the I got, Lynch I got Mob. A, I got an Ice Cube later, but, but at that time... Um, it was just like this, like Wasp, all like like all of these like incredible bands. I was like, anything that was happening, I was like right there, you know. So, um, and so we'd get Metal Edge and had all of these pictures, and I would just hang them up. And over time, I had wallpapered my my room and my ceiling with these Metal Edge pictures, you know. Uh, I feel like I had a, a friend named Gary who had done the same thing, but his he came from like this family where uh, you know his dad was not into heavy metal and like you know would call him fag and all this other stuff and you know it was, it was, was kind of tragic like you'd kind of torture him, but he was like the first person like we would get into metal like together you know and um, so he started doing that with his, his room so I just like you know. Like I spent all my all my money went uh, like my lunch money went to cassette tapes and um, these posters these or 
magazines. And so me and, and then I met my friend Dan and we were into uh, like we got into shredding. So to go back a step after the after the metal edge, I, I was obviously wanted to become a musician. And in my mind, the the way to get into there was to play bass. And so my parents didn't buy me an instrument. We didn't have enough money to buy me an instrument, but my mom managed a fabric store. And so I think my eighth grade year, instead of going to this cool camp with my friends for spring break, I worked at my mom's fabric store for a week. I saved $210. I made $210 that week. And then at the end of that week, I went to Music 6000. It wasn't where it is now. It was actually deeper in Lacey. And I went to Music 6000. I walked there. It was two miles with $210. And I walked in, and they had all the stuff up, but all of it was more money than I had. And I actually had all the money in my hand, and I was like, I have $210, and I want to get a base. How can we make this happen? And they had one that was $208. And so they, they, they kind of adjusted the price so I didn't have to pay tax. So they took all my money. What kind? What, what color? It was a Tenar, red Tanara base. I remember it's not even a brand I've even seen since. But I didn't have a strap. I didn't have an amp. I didn't have a case. But they handed me the bass, and I walked all the way home with it. I walked it with my hand. I imagine like people driving up and down <laughs> College Road and stuff like that. They're seeing this chubby kid um, with you know like some skater hat or whatever. And I walked all the way home, and I slept with the bass for like a week. And I spent all this time trying to learn it. And... Um, you know, and so I, my friend Dan, who went to school with me, he was like really into like Steve Vai and all these shredder people. So he was like, oh, we should play music together. And like we kind of got together because there's this other guy who was really good at drums, but he was really named Brian. And he was, he was really hard to hang out with. Like he was just, he's just kind of an asshole, mm-hmm. you know? And he didn't really know it. He was sort of like like one of those people that ends up doing like meth later to sort of yeah. even out. So it was sort of like turned In up. his head. Right. So he got us together and we played a couple of times, but I, me and Dan really became friends. And so we started jamming together. We were doing all this, like learning the taps and arpeggios and like all this Did stuff. you have a bass hero? Um, well, at Rudy the, Sarzo? Well, at the time it was Billy Sheehan. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he was kind of the Inge of bass. And, and David Lee Roth. Yeah, like, so yeah, he was yeah, in David right, Lee Roth and right. like... So like uh, <clears throat> so he was like my bass idol. Um, as far as like somebody who was like kind of doing all this stuff, so Metal Edge turned into like the trade magazines, like the guitar and bass player magazines. So I got real. So I started buying bass player magazine, and that's when Victor Wooten came in, like and people I'd never even heard of. Like I like the funny thing is, it's like you know without streaming, without having like Spotify or YouTube. I'd get these magazines, and there's all these all these people like Mark Levin, who's level forty two. You know, it's like yeah. all these like, you know, even Ingve, like all these people that I hadn't really heard of, but apparently they're like really good. Yeah, and so they'd have all like the tablature and things like that. So I just got really into it, and so we would sit in it. Um, you know, I got an amp eventually, and we would just sit in his garage and just like learn weird stuff and try to make weird stuff like. You know, when I think about, like, moving into, like, alternative or, like, the punk world, like, it's really, like, Chili Peppers and Primus, Jane's Addiction. Like, these are the bands that are sort of, like, kind of, like, piquing our interest because they were, like, kind of doing weird stuff. And it was a tie-in between the Shredder and, like, the, you know, the glam metal. Yeah. And the heavy metal we were listening to. Um, 
well, another another big thing, another big chapter in this sort of section with Dan is that sort of kind of edged us more towards weird music is uh, we were super into Metallica, mm. like really big Metallica fans. And I remember like there's this whole week on Headbangers Ball, they were going to uh, premiere um, the video for Enter um, uh, Sandman. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we were so excited. We we're like, oh, stoked, man. We're just like the new Metallica. And like, I think like that Saturday, Headbangers Ball played at midnight. So that Saturday, we got together and we started practicing shredding and we're listening to like Master Puppets and like getting all psyched in it. And I remember when that song played, like when they, then they debuted the video because one was so badass. Yeah. Like one was like scary. Like, you know, like I think I had nightmares. The song one. Well, not the song, but the video itself. Oh like yeah. The, the Johnny, video. I got right, his, right. the Johnny got his gun clips. Right. And like, I just really, for some existentially, it really fucked me up. Um, like, yeah, it's about a guy who's had like, like his I legs. You can't hear what, yeah, Oh my God. You know, yeah, he's just nothing but <laughs> a stump with the consciousness. <laughs> oh my God. We were just freaking out. And so, um, it's gnarly when, uh, inner Sandman came out, like we were so, disappointed like as soon as it started playing because it was too commercial too pop well i mean it's not pop but you know what i mean it was like, like alice in chains or something yeah. but like a little more you know and then we read we i mean you know we read later it's like oh they want to be more bluesy they kind of want to like meet fans in the middle or whatever and not be so weird but we were so disappointed by that song like i remember just being like this sucks metallica's over Turns out it was the turning point of them being bigger than ever. Right. But um, like we just absolutely hated that song, and that was sort of like, well, what else can we do? I mean, like these people aren't doing anything good, and like you know, the metal heroes are sort of letting us down. And uh, so one day, like, I've had, fil- did you have any punk awareness at this point? Like, like did you know about Dead Kennedys or Black Flag or you anything? know? It was all like it was all like the logos. Logos. You know, you'd, you'd see them logos, on a weird yeah. older kid's binder, yeah. like the DK logo, yeah. or somebody would draw the social D skeleton. Right. Um, so it was kind of like a lot of stuff like that. But And it was like a seedy kind of thing. Like we were like younger and all MTV'd out. But then there was like these people that are listening to like, you know, they smell like patchouli, <laughs> uh, like they're shaving their head. You know, they don't have long hair. They have like really short hair and or they're coloring it with weird things. So we were just a little kind of like, you know, we weren't so sure about it, the the punk aspect. And it was, it was, and everything else was like propaganda. It's like, oh, punk is, you know, you see an MTV or a magazine or whatever. Well, punk is this. It's not, you know, it's not Billy Sheehan. You yeah, know, it's not Victor Wooten. It's not you virtuosic. Know. It's like, oh, they're just, you know, you'd hear like these stories or whatever. So it was a little like, you know, and I think like, through our, through parents and like, you know, older people, they had like, a, punk meant like this kind of, evil or stupid thing so i don't think we were necessarily against it i think it was just more uh like we didn't have that kind of awareness like you know we weren't going to shows yet yeah. really you know and so so how how old, how old are you at this point it's probably like 14 14 yeah and so shortly after that um uh we we're <laughs> me and my friend are jamming out in the in the uh garage and his mom comes in and I think, like, his mom, because we were just jam all the time, I think she was just trying to, like, find a way to get us out of the house or whatever, to do something else or, like, you know, have a romantic night with dad or whatever. And so she came and was like, read this thing in the paper. She was like, hey, there's a thing going happen in downtown. There's this festival 
and all these bands are playing. It seems like a big deal. It was in the Olympia, and like there's a blurb about it. And we're like, oh, that's weird. And it's like, oh, you guys should go. And we're like, what? Really? We should go? Yeah, that's all the way downtown, you know? And they're just like, yeah, we'll drop you off. You should go. And we're like, oh, that's kind of weird and exciting. So let's go check it out. You know, we never heard of any of these bands. We saw the list. We saw the poster. We're just like, we don't know who these people are. But um, (laughs) as soon as uh, she dropped us off and we got out of the car, it was so fucking real. Like, it was instantaneous. Like, it changed the minute we got out. What did you see? You know, so, I mean, we just saw, like, everybody wearing all these, like, crazy shirts. And, like, you know, and it wasn't, like, studs and spikes. It was, like, people in cardigans, like, people with weird styles of makeup, like, different types of hair. And everybody was sort of milling about, and the, everybody was really excited. Um, and I know I saw some other bands, but the the initial thing that really changed me was... The head coats performance, um, and I th- I, f- I want to say it was like a day show. I want to say it was like in the afternoon, and I think we'd kind of gone. We ended up going for as many as much as we could. Like we came back that night, and we were just like, "Take us back down," you know. And like they let <laughs> us take the bus. But I remember we went and saw the head coats, and they were playing this like amazing music, and they had like I think they had their own PA, and they're wearing <laughs> they're just like Sherlock Holmes, and we're like, "What the fuck is this? This is nothing like we've never seen before." And they had this whole thing where there's these metal heads up front. And uh, I think it was from the band. There's a band called Splat that uh, I really liked. That was like the first like kind of local band. And, and, and they, were, they were around. They kind of like, we'd see, it, see them at the mall and they'd kind of take us under their wing or whatever. And like, hey, this is cool, man. Smoke a cigarette. Like kind of opened us up to that type of thing. And so we saw them and they were out there and they were heckling the head coach. They were like, you guys suck or whatever. And like Billy Child just laid into him, and he had this whole diatribe about how stupid they were, and like get a haircut. You guys are fucking want to be hippies. Metal sucks. Like this whole thing, and it was very convincing. <laughs> like I don't. I mean, my friend Dan was changed, as I'll explain later. But you know, for me, that was just like, oh shit, everything I'm listening to is stupid. Like this. <laughs> is what's really happening because the music was so visceral. Like it was like, it was just the right type of thing. And from there it just went off. And like, I remember seeing like, we were really deeply affected by nation Ulysses, like having like, see <laughs> like a band come out in like suits and like a flag. And it was, su- it just felt super serious. Um, we snuck into like the night, uh, the, you know, the night that, um, uh, you know, everybody, like, what do they call it? Uh, you know, everybody kind of played one song, like, all these girls came up, uh, like Rose Melberg like and all these people. kind of hoot nanny night? Or yeah, the, the, the yeah, it was kind of, yeah. but it was, like, just to see people that didn't normally perform and weren't musicians in the sense that we had read about or learned about, uh, going up there and contributing something and playing these, like, playing these songs and, like, you know, up until then, like, it was all just like, oh, how much virtuosity is kind of put into this recording or into the what they're playing. But to have, like, emotional content up there and these people putting everything into this one performance, this one song that they're doing, and to everybody else that we knew, it would probably be bad music. But seeing seeing that community and seeing them perform that it was just completely riveting um you know fugazi's performance was incredible i mean it was like everything sort of really it was such a melee 
you know, and we were so heightened, like, by that. Like, we left there, like, I think, like, my friend Dan, like, he instantly stopped wearing pants. Like, he started wearing skirts. Like Just he, boom. He started, like, dyeing his hair and, you know, putting beads in his hair and, like, completely wanting to go counterculture. Like, that was completely what we were obsessed with after that. And it was night and day. I mean, the week after it, we were, like, going down to Positive 4th Street. You know, we were, like, trying to find different types of magazines, like Finding Op or, you know, we're trying to find all these different avenues to learn about this, like, weird style of music. Uh, And, you know, it was uncovering a rock and having all the ants run out. You know, you're just like, this existed under my nose. Like, I've been propagandized, you know, this whole time. And the fact this totally cool shit is happening underneath it, you know. And, And then, you know, Beat Happening, I remember that, too. It was just like wow, you know, there's not a bass player and, like, this guy is up there in this tiny little t-shirt and, like, kind of, like, he's not singing in tune, um, but the music is, like, super groovy. Like, I'd never heard Velvet Underground or anything. So it's all kind of coming from these performances. So it just started this whole thing that continues to this day. I mean, I think my obsession with, you know, underground music and culture and art and literature and everything, it really stems to that day. I've told Calvin this in many times, you know, you know, we'll, we've done, Dub Narcotic would do a tour and they'd talk about it. And then, oh, when did you discover punk? I was like, oh, I know exactly what I did. Like I stepped out of the car on this day and punk was right on my face. And it just, it just kept going and I never let it go. And it, it, it's really, it's really silly. When I think about, when I think about glam metal, like, you know, I have a very wide spectrum of stuff that I like as far as music that I care about. And it's funny how glam metal, how little glam metal has able to age over time. <laughs> you know, recently I did listen to pretty boy Floyd recently, like a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, Oh, I remember the feeling that I had when I was listening to this. It feels really good. Like all the, all those bands like poison and all those other bands, like it was all about feeling good. And I think that's sort of that dichotomy that people feel about Nirvana and glam metal. It's just like, oh, Nirvana was like, oh, fuck it, it's serious. And, you know, Poison was trying to have a good time. And there is something missing in that. But uh, just the way the music was recorded, it just didn't, it doesn't have that staying power, you know? So, right. um, but iPop is, was, is king. And I think about it often. That, that was festival. it. Oh, for sure, you know? And it was completely, you know, it just motivated me to just find something different, you know? And then uh, the, the ska, the ska boom kind of came shortly after that. And so I kind of got into ska band. I was playing in the ska band called Engine 54. And that's my connection to Dub Narcotic. Was, yeah. I was playing in Engine 54. Brian saw me play in that band. Brian from Dub Narcotic. Dub Narcotic. Yeah. And uh, he, and we became friends and he was like, oh, this guy's got to be in the band. And so he got me in. And then that going to Calvin's house was sort of like the next chapter, you know, like, I mean, that, that room, the record room, the record room, you know? And, um, so the Indy 54 thing is, so we were as a ska band and it was a band that was so, it was a kind of a band of all these, like they had this skate company called Acme ska, Acme. And then they named a band called Acme ska core. That was kind of a promotion for their like local skateboard company. And so that, they only played in Olympia. And so they in town, they kind of were stars. They'd kind of built up this cachet. 
And then they needed a bass player. Like when I was like 19, they were like, oh, you should join our band. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And they were moving into their, before they were like kind of like op ivy. But then like the new people were trying to like, they got like, you know, traditional skinheads in it. And so they wanted to do this kind of like Scottalites kind of revival thing. And that's kind of when I came in. And uh, the first time I hung out at that house, um, Calvin was like, oh, you should record a single, you know here in our in the basement and so we all came over and we had a song called skinhead train so we had been playing it for months we played it a a bunch of times but then right when it got to the point when we were going to record it there's all of a sudden there's like like wet there's there's kind of this um cold not wet feet cold feet about it by some of the people because they were just like skinhead i don't know man it could be like nazi like whatever but of course the skinheads are like no man skinhead means this and this and this like yeah you know we're inundated with spirit of 69 and all this other stuff so like we were in the know but of course you know skinhead is such a charged word if you don't if you're in the pacific northwest in the 90s exactly if you have a red spirit of 69 people don't think immediately of people in checkerboard outfits yeah exactly you know or these big kindly guys they don't think of the guy from madness sort of like (laughs) yeah exactly it wasn't like madness at all so um so there's this huge fight between these like two factions in the band um and uh they were like they were out in the front yard and they were just like really yelling at each other. And it was me and in the front yard of Calvin's house, the front yard of Calvin's house. But <laughs> I had stayed inside and, uh, um, uh, so I was sitting on the couch and, uh, <laughs> looking at the, re- looking at some records or some magazines he had. And Calvin comes in and he was just like, so how's it like being with these guys? And I was like, Oh, it's cool. And he was just like, ah, Okay, and they're like totally like about start yeah. swinging outside, and then you know. Meanwhile, he, he's poaching you from the van, right? And he was just like, "How's it going?" I mean, oh well, hey, you know. Um, and I was like, just asking about like, "Wow, you got a lot of records." He's like, "Yeah, come and check it out." So I went in there, and you know, the thing that really impressed upon me was, um, so me and my skinhead friends, like they were like obsessed with collecting like ska, rock, steady, reggae records. So, you know, we were getting all this stuff, but it was very, like, homogenous. Like, we were, like, you know, like, some people were, like, into the subhuman. You know, there's, like, a hardcore from the skinheads, like, you know, there's a gutter punk kind of, like, connection. And so some punk records would get in. But I remember um, (coughs) going in that room, and he had way more records of just the ska and rock steady and reggae than we had. Oh yeah. Exponentially. Oh yeah, more. his dub collection is insane. Exactly. Yeah. And so and then on top of that he had thousands and thousands and thousands of other things. And the impression it made on me was just like no, the true way is you have to be in everything. You know, you have to let everything in and you have to care about music in general. And from and that was sort of, that kind of made my band ridiculous after that. Like <laughs> like he sort of like you know, kind of like just kind of shut down that mindset in a way. Like I was into being a, a rude boy and a mod, like Olivia and I, my partner in COCO, yeah. like we were like, Oh, we're like into, we're into this thing. Like, and that's what we're into, you know, we're watching quadrophenia all the time and all this other stuff. And then to sort of see that we were sort of thinking like a laser instead of just sort of letting everything in. Like, I mean, that was totally impressionable to me. I was just like, everything is off, you know, it's like, 
and and um brian had uh, he had a lot of tidbits that influenced me as well too like he would say stuff like you know there's a bit of ma- every good song has a bit of magic in it so don't ignore it you know because of whatever politics you have and he was like you know he was really intrinsic and kind of um inspiring that like like state of mind too so that was a big thing like you know i was sort of like oh okay alternative culture now i'm going to be all into alternative culture and then just to sort of realize that like you know really everything is out there you know and if you love something and it's coming to you and you're feeling it that means something you know like we're all tuning forks and so you should really keep that spectrum open because that's where the magic is going to come in and then you know once i was once I got to that point mentally, then like magical stuff was happening all the time, you know? So, so Calvin changed your life. Yeah. For, I mean, mean, totally, totally. IPU and then the record club. Unabashedly, you know, and you know, I could, you know, there's so many other ways too. It's like, as far as like, you know, like moments, like, you know, being young and being in a van and doing this all night drive with Calvin and, you know, and then we're, you know, okay, we're eight hours away from wherever the fuck. And so I was just like, hey, what's punk? You know, and that was the eight hour drive. Like Calvin laid out this history. Like instead of reading, you know, like we got the neutron bomb, he just sort of like laid out this whole thing. And though by the end of that drive, I was like, oh shit, like I got to know, all, I got to learn all this other stuff. Like all this other stuff means a lot. So, I mean, it's just really about caring. Like it really, yeah, it really was him, like, in a lot of ways. Like, he is, like, sort of, like, you know, uh, like a mentor. Like, he, he's the type of person that doesn't, wouldn't want to take in mentees. I think, like, maybe Phil Elvrum was sort of a mentee in that way, but Phil was already kind of, like, grinding and doing... He was already on his way to being himself. Um, but he was, like... He was a mentor to me, just kind of, like, silently. And it was, like, me kind of just being around and learning about stuff, like recording on a sound like a you know my first time i was ever on a a pressed record was a seven inch you know dub narcotic seven inch or you know going on tour or like going on tour in an underground way like without a manager like you know making calls like you know he wasn't emailing at the time or he probably was but um you know he kind of like showed me the light of like not real, I don't know if whatever's the right way to do something, but DIY though, right, right. Yeah. But just kind of opened up to <clears throat> like kind of I, I don't want to use the word correct because, but it, it is like like he just being tied into a community, you know, that's not only like national but global, and letting everything in and just being in touch and just kind of just wanting to be in touch with what's going on. Like, is what's buzzing, what's vibrating, like, really searching out those types of things and the way to interact, like, I, that's all him, you yeah. know? And so, I, I'm grateful to him, like, all the time. Like, just even my motivation to collect, like, records or anything like that is it stems from the things that I learned just being around him, you know, singularly. Um, you know, there's other great people that come in and influence me in these other ways and sort of form these nuances, but it really is Calvin. For sure. Yeah, I mean, how lucky to be, um, to have your local mentor guide be a total singular legend of indie music. Right. 
recognized the world over. Right. You know, just in your neighborhood, essentially. For sure. And like not and slowly realizing that over time. I think when I started hanging out with him, we were like, oh, well, he has like a record label. And, you know, I think I've heard of Kay. And then you go down to like Kay offices and like, you know, people like Qu- Quitty and, you know, you were around and stuff. And, oh, these interesting people doing these things. And over time, realizing how important that those things are. Like, you know, I like, uh, you know, we went on tour and like we were in like in Arizona or Nevada or whatever, and we were driving along, and he's like, "Oh, I gotta say hi to a friend of mine." You know, let's go to a studio and check it out. And so we go to the studio, and it's kind of like you know, it's like in the middle of nowhere, and he's just like, "Oh, hey, oh, this is my friend, Greg. oh Greg, Greg, okay, cool." And so you leave later, it's just like, "Oh yeah, Greg Sage, he was in this band called you know Wipers, Wipers. Oh, that's a weird name." And then you just kind of go on with life, and then you realize, <laughs> then you listen to the Wipers, and you're like. That was that was I fucking met Greg Sage. I had no fucking idea. <laughs> right. So and that kind of happened a lot, especially like the first couple of years being in the band. Like, yeah. like oh no, actually these guys are are pretty heavy. Like the first time I met um, Ian Mackay, like I kind of didn't like it was just kind of this guy, and we were eating like like uh, Japanese food somewhere, like in Maryland or somewhere. And he has like he's kicking like Ian McKay's kicking all this knowledge and giving us all this advice, and I'm just trying to take it in. And I knew that he was like an elder, and I knew that like he wasn't an elder, but you know he was friends with Calvin, and like just listening to him talk, I'm like whatever, and then like realizing like oh yeah, he was a guy, he was taking tickets at IPU right, and he was in that band Fugazi, but you know like oh Minor Threat, who I love, and the importance of discord and what he, he gave to the world, like way after the way after I met him or really connected with him, I sort of made all these realizations. So um, yeah, it, it was an interesting learning curve because I didn't come into it. Like I know who these amazing people are. Like I'm trying to get in there. It really was. I'm here. Like I'm part of this group of, of this community, but like over time, like, Oh wait, Oh, that's kind of a big deal. Oh, that person's a big deal too. You know? And that happened all the time. And now you're a big deal. Well, <laughs> you, know? you know, I feel like <clears throat> I'm, you know, like a, like a child of that, like a child of that revolution. You know, I feel like there's a certain level, there's a bunch of people like, you know, my age or younger who sort of understand and appreciate what these figures have done for music. But, <clears throat> but I feel like, you know, um, you know, nothing I'm, nothing I'm, I'm going to do is like, you know, it's going to be as important as the first beat happening record or, you know, or, you know, nation Ulysses like first stuff or even like the makeup or, you know, or like unwound, you know, people like that. I feel like I'm just, you know, just a appreciator, like kind of younger. I did some stuff. I, I made a lot of stuff and I'm very grateful and, and I'm grateful to be, to call some of these people friends you know, All of them very friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, um, but like as a, as a musician, I don't think you'll ever, as an, a music appreciator, I don't think I'll ever be like, oh, my stuff is important just because, you know, it's like, it's that, high, it's like that high fidelity thing, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, you can sit down in your castle and like listen to all this amazing stuff, but, you know, your stuff, like, you know, it's, well, my stuff isn't that record, you know, or, 
you know, whatever. It's for someone else to put you in that. Sure. And hold you in that esteem. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. That's so. a healthy, a healthy attitude to have. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. And that stuff really is great. And I feel like, you know, what makes up the music that I make or I've made, like, you know, I've been so grateful for that influence and to have that so close. Like you said, it's in town. Yeah. Like there's people like in town, like downtown. Yeah at the Brotherhood, at the coffee shop, like, just hanging out. And it's, um, they, the stuff that they did and the influence that they they gave me is, is huge. I mean, and, and, you know, like, going back to what we were talking about earlier, like, the town in general, like, were you in, were you around when the Transfused happened? Oh, yeah. Like, like, Tell fuck. people what the Transfused was if they don't well, know. Well, well, okay, so the, so, uh, our community. Because it is a classic Olympia project that you kind of think only in Olympia. Completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, so our community, like the Olympia community came together and they wrote this post-apocalyptic musical, right? Uh, with like original songs and like, I don't know who, how many people were in the cast, but everybody, most people that first night, everybody in town was either in the audience or they were on stage. Capital Theater. Right. At the Capital Theater. And uh, they did this, they put together this incredible musical and it, you know, the fact that, and it was like all about like transgender stuff, like way, I mean, this is like, I mean, 90, I can't, can't remember when this was. Five, nine, yeah, 96, 96, I mean, yeah, late 90s or something, but uh, um, like way before any of those issues have <laughs> become like hot button issues today. But they created this whole thing and it'll never, probably never happen again just because the logistics are so crazy and it, I, I mean, it just didn't really happen before, but to have, like, I cried. It was mind-bending. Like, the first night. And I'd heard about it. Like, people were, oh, I'm in the transfuser. I got to do, like, the rehearsal for this yeah. thing. And then to sort of see it that night and to have people that I knew put together this amazing thing. Um, and I thought, I thought it was like, these people are going to be stars. Like, um, Jerry Beard, like, you know, who's part of the sort of group of people, the gossip kids that came from Arkansas. Like, oh, my God. Like, he was like an icon to me. I was a mess, a lost and hopeless mess, but my commander took me in. She told me, boy, I won't accept any less than the best. That's what I needed. She gave me what I needed. No one else sees what Seeing him do his thing on stage and, um, you know, and to have it happen like pre-internet, like it was kind of barely documented at all. Um, So it's hard to study as far as like, I mean, at this point, it would be like kind of like hearsay, the sort of mysterious. And it's kind of unbelievable that it happened, Um, you know, and all the people involved were worked so, so hard of it. I mean, it broke up relationships like there's people that were friends before it that aren't friends anymore and like the crucible yeah, yeah so radio people, sloan was a, a yeah. bit like big musical part of it rachel carnes nomi lamb scott seckington scott uh and oxygen was so up in there people. um 
just so many creative people and to sort of organize that amount of creativity into into one it's fully realized fully realized thing and it like it probably should have went on tour it probably could have went on tour and exploded in this other way and like you know it's like, but it's like the, it's in the same category as like you know you know like carp yeah or something like you know unwound's getting their flowers now because you know they're getting they're part of their like this reissue market and it's sort of these new people discovering you know uh discovering that music but at the same time it's still mysterious like there's not a lot of pictures and like the artwork's really like you know you don't really know what's going on, going on with the artwork and you know it's like it's before social media so that stuff isn't really like put out there um so it's it's kind of this interesting band it's kind of weird to see them it's not weird to see them because they're an amazing band which they proved recently again but uh to to have a band that's still like that people are still like even more than like the stones or like black metal bands or something like that like you know people can look at these bands and and kind of gather information from like the legends and the hearsay or whatever but like unwound and carp don't even like have that you know there's this like it's a really tight community and the people that know really know um but at the same time it's like you know, I'm still hearing music today that was just like, oh man, you know, like there are these bands that were doing it better and they're like from Tumwater. And it's, you know, it's it's kind of frightening. It, it scares me a little bit that that Carp isn't going to get, that, that, that Carp won't get that kind of reaction because I really do think they're one of the best bands ever. Yeah. And, and I'm surprised, I'm surprised as time goes on, how many people haven't heard of them right. or, or have to be like, Oh, what's carp? Oh, well, carp was this, this band, you know, explain it to them or whatever, you know, and they're still just like, Oh, okay. I'm going to go listen to Eagles of death metal or whatever, you know? So it, yeah. it's just like an interesting, it's, it, it, it's, it's very, <laughs> it's not confusing because shit falls through, falls through the strainer all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, it is the nature of, of the history of art and music. I mean, how right. many, you know, I just think when I'm, popped into my mind not like the image of how many you know people p- before recorded music you know were the greatest musician of all time and right. it's all just into the air and into the vapor and if you saw it you saw it and if right. you didn't see it you didn't see it right and well, you know these yeah. these bands are kind of in that uh well you know, talking about carp obviously they put out records and things and and have some live shows documented with video and stuff sure. but you know yeah not not a ton of people got to see them live right because there's bands like you know that I saw back in the day that you know were being seen by small groups of people like I think of the Bad Brains back in that era where you know I remember mm. seeing them in places with like 150 right. people and going this has to be like the greatest band of all time right why isn't the whole world paying attention to this totally. and enough people saw them but um, yeah you know it's it's a it's a crazy thing with music and art what gets through the you know filter and what doesn't and for whatever reason so many factors but yeah i mean carp absolutely i mean there's i mean i and i put them in that category of those sets where like seeing the bad brains back then uh um like i remember sitting with ian micaiah at a yo-yo a go-go yeah and watching carp at that show and then there's a video of that on youtube and i have yeah. i have put that on my it's instagram before show. yes and i remember ian like at, turning to me after that set and just going dude what is the deal with olympia that this is just a band of kids from the town right i'm like yeah 
And, and then you go, and then there's Unwound over there who are just kids from Tumwater. Yes, totally. And, you know, to, you know, it's crazy. Right. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, Pete on your last show was talking about how, oh, he's not playing bar chords. It's all these, like, puzzle, it's like these sound puzzles put together. And, like, it really, it's so apropos of what uh, Justin is doing. Um, but, you know, the thing is, like, as a rock band, you know, I was unwound. Like, there's so many bands that, like, you know, like these weird post-rock bands and things like that that are, kind of do kind of what Unwound does, but they don't. They can't. They, they actually can't, you know, because, you know, of course, Vern is, like, the singular figure, and, you know, Sarah's, like, has this int- really interesting way of drums, like, it's math mixed with John Bottom somehow, you know, and, like, Justin isn't playing bar chords. Um, but besides Unwound and Carp, it's, like, first time I saw the thrones it's the same sort of thing man like like oh people were like oh joe preston he was in the melvins that's that that's pretty cool and the first time first time i saw him play is like i saw him play at the north shore surf club um the melvins did and that was really funny too because i didn't get it i didn't get the melvins um because i remember me and my friend me and my friend dan were there and we're like i remember they started playing and we were thinking like when are they going to play the next note because they weren't going to play the next note and then they played the next note and then the third note seemed to take longer to come we would never <laughs> we'd never heard music that slow yeah. and loud before so we didn't get it i mean i'd heard sabbath like you know the concept or whatever but i it we didn't understand it at all you know, but we were transfixed. Like, we just sat there staring at them, and we we're just like, oh, man, like, I think we're experiencing something. This is, like, a really crazy thing. Um, and then later on, you're just like, oh, yeah, like, you totally get it. Like, getting into, like, kind of drone stuff. I mean, what made me think about, um, you know, Joe Preston was, like, seeing the thrones for the first time and having that sort of power. First of all, it's one person playing it, and the the drum programming was, like totally fucked up you know um and so like to have that sound come at me and the, the, the concept the concept the concepts that were going through my mind were just like this is so cool and and growing was another example of that like when i saw growing like <laughs> like to have like like those two people and they had all these amps you know you know like they're just you know this sort of wing of these huge <laughs> amps and to have like music that was power over melody, like we're just like gonna bathe you. Yeah, people think it started with sun, right? Exactly. <laughs> but, like, no. You know, and like maybe like, I don't know where it start. I mean, you know, people like get conceptual about it. it's like oh Lamont Young and like you know sure. people, you know, talk about like so and you know who knows what what Joe was thinking you know when they put it together, but uh, I remember my first experience with it was was very. You know, it definitely changed my idea of music, and it was a thing like like you said what what you know Ian said to you you know yo yo it's like this thing constantly happens where there are these bands that were changing what I thought music is supposed to be even after I was um and oh I'm I'm working at a rainy day like I'm a nerd I'm trying to absorb all the stuff like a sponge but yet there's still people in bands there's still acts in town that are just like fucking up what I thought about music in a completely enjoyable way, you know? Um, 
But, you know, the interesting part about that is that you get, think about the Olympia Pride thing, is that every time I left town or would go to, like, L.A. or, like, New York, I just felt like a total bumpkin. Like, you're just like, oh, yeah, man, we're playing this cool music, and we're gonna, like, we're gonna, like, trip you out or whatever. And then you go there, and they're just, like, all these people, like, just waiting for you to impress them. And if you haven't impressed them already, then they're not going to be impressed. So um, that was sort of the dichotomy. Like, you really feel, like, enriched. It's like, oh, I live in a pretty fucking cool town. And then you go somewhere else, they're just like, your town isn't that cool, you know? <laughs> Especially, like, in L.A. and stuff like that. But, yeah. But Transfuse was one, and I wanted a, a, a sort of, like, a lighter version of the Transfuse that Carp was involved with. Is uh, The Star Wars? The Star Wars thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. I was going to get to that. Yes. Uh, I was thinking of that when you were talking about this Transfused as being one of those things too totally totally so i mean like what jason's referring to is so a a bunch of the bands in town got asked to perform at the capitol theater and everybody was asked to do a like like a star wars tribute or like a cover of a star wars song in the style of music that they play and i was in a ska band and i forget what we did I think we did like the opening, you know, da, 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 da. I think we did that like a ska version of that mm-hmm. somehow. And then I remember Carp did the Imperial Death March. Of and course. It was like the coolest fucking thing I'd ever seen. You know, it was, was mind like, bending. <laughs> it was like fucking crazy. Dun, so, dun, um, dun. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They did, and they did it forever for like a really long time. And the funny thing about Carp is like uh, the first time I saw Carp on a flyer, me and my friend went to go see them. And when we we went to the show and the band that was on stage were just like ah everybody likes this band carp i don't know man we don't really get it and so we left and it turns out we didn't see carp <laughs> we saw hell trout uh-huh. and we were like oh like, this man. is the big deal right and so then they played sorry hell trout <laughs> right, right. You guys, you guys were cool, but but I mean, I think the description was it's like these guys are gonna fucking blow your yeah, mind. Yeah, and you're so going fucking like, really? oh, they're gonna fucking twist your intestines in half, and like, so we're like, oh, here we go. And then we're like, oh, okay, this is okay. This is kind of like other bands we saw, and like, I think they played a couple of times. It's like, oh, we're gonna go see Carb. It's like, oh, really? Yeah, okay. You know, they're okay. And then I think like, I feel like they got back from tour. Maybe I forget what show I saw, and then. Oh, Carp's on next. And I was like, holy shit. Like, it just fucked me up, you know? Just like so loud and so cool. And Scott and like. I mean, Scott you know, Jernigan, you know, as, as far as drummers go, he's as good as there is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the only folly is that they weren't, you know, they were recorded fine. But I feel like, you know, like if they would have got like some sort of meaty pr- production on something i mean maybe it would have ruined their sound maybe they shouldn't have I mean, it's a good thing they didn't do that but i feel like that's that's the thing that's maybe keeping them away from like like people really appreciating them is because they didn't really get the right sonic treatment on on vinyl um but for the heads i mean it's very like you know in a sort of selfish weird gatekeeper way like it's like oh well you had to be there you know and so like people like when you meet people that weren't even born at the time you know they're just like oh wait what were you there were you at that show whoa man what was it like you know and they're just like whoa you know so you know it's like this memory that only certain people have but at the same time it's especially when you know we're getting older you know like scott's gone and like you know, Vern's gone. I think it's really important that the stuff needs to be moralized. And I, I, you know, Unwound is getting, 
you know, the ultimate examination. And I feel like, like carp is like missing that. Like, you know, um, that movie came out, that documentary that was really cool. And I thought that was like the first step. I was like, Oh, Hey, this is coming out and here we go, you know, but for some reason it didn't take off after that. And there's probably a variety of reasons for that. You know, it doesn't make him any less cool. Like, um, just when they come up, I love talking about them because yeah. like they were really important to me. And I think like just really, you know, even like the rise of bands like Mastodon and like Queens of the Stone Age and yeah. all these bands that have come out. Like, I feel like, I mean, I don't know if they heard Carp, but it certainly sounds like they did. You know? Well, Carp also had just such a unique and special um, thing. You know, it's like every great band is that mis- is that miraculous combination of people and yeah. and the chemistry of them, you know, that's yeah. just the thing. Then it doesn't, you can't plan for it. You can't make it happen. Yeah. It just happens very organically. And that's one of those bands that's like that. And, and I think of the intensity, but then also this sense of humor, which, yes. which, you know, you could think like, yes, I mean, that, suplex that's, record. Like, that's yeah. like a weird thing to pull off because, you know, typically lesser or more stock bands are going to have, you know, we're super, super heavy, and we're super intense, and we're super, super serious, right? And hardcore about it, and and there's like devil imagery, or, or we have, like yeah, zombies coming out of a zombie, super gnarly yeah, yeah. imagery or whatever, right? And you know, Carp was just so completely what it was. It's so right. natural. Like this right. is what we are. This is how we are. You're getting exactly the the real thing un, as unaffected as possible. And the other thing they offered too was, especially like, like an ex-metalhead like me, like they were like the first punk band to be like, oh, metal's cool. Actually, metal's really cool. And we're going to put that with punk and, you know, and it's going to make sense in this other way. Well, they're, they're descendants of the Melvins, you know, and the Melvins, you know, that's that, I mean, that's that combo of, it's it's all that, that mishmash of, you know, the, the Kiss and Black Sabbath. Yeah. It's that Northwest mm. wing of grunge that's, you know. Yeah just in there and yeah. carp is is that one it's like i think of like a, i'm picturing like a tree you know and there's all these things that go into it and then carp's like this one kind of apple that grows on it mm-hmm. you know that uh that comes from those things yeah. yeah this and a perfect mix i mean i think when i think of self-titled that album you know it's got a very black flaggy quality to it in my mind too mm. even though you know it's different but maybe the the recording quality of it is I think that album is sonically really great. Mm. I mean, it doesn't have the yeah. full sonic colors that you might get in a fancier recording. Another great cover, but yeah. in the punk, yeah, wow. so stripped down, so simple. Um, but you know that album, I think of as a as a punk masterpiece. You know, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. And I think with the Suplex and the uh, uh, the pro wrestling aspect, yeah. that was another thing that yeah. I grew up loving a lot too. Yeah was like that wasn't cool and then it was cool now yeah. you know and i was like oh they they kind of get it and it is funny the sense of humor yeah. even in the name the yeah. name itself yeah. the song titles it's a high like school that. band right you exactly know? it's a high school band that, that could conquer the world but it's also like super serious you know there's this famous quote that uh jello who you know really well of course he had um there's this quote i always think about that he said that he when he first heard the ramones he thought it was a joke band yeah and then he saw them and saw how serious it was. And I sort of had the, the same, similar kind of experience right. with that. Where I was just like, oh, it was, you know, oh, the, they're really into pro wrestling and the pictures are really funny and crazy. But wow, 
you know. Well, when you're that good, you can be as silly as you want. Right. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Exactly. And but then people, when you see it live, you're like, oh, okay. But you, but like you said, like people that are that good, usually they don't take the time to be in touch with that type of sense of humor. Yeah. And uh, which is something that you touched on in your music, you know, like when we mm-hmm. went on tour together. Yeah, yeah. Like that was a thing too, is that you, oh, I mean, it obviously, I mean, it naturally led to your stand up. Yeah. Like kind of thing. Um, but you were sort of had those elements in your performance anyway. Yeah. You know? Like, <coughs> I remember you have my, um, you actually have my favorite uh, Ozzy Osbourne impression. Oh, is that time. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love you all. <laughs> so great. <laughs> I remember I did uh, Ozzy um, with uh, the Halloween show at, at the Capitol Theater. Mm, mm-hmm. I did, um, I was, I was the, the Ozzy to the Sabbath band that was Quiddy and Sea Average. Mm. So it was John and wow. yeah, Brad, and then Quiddy, and then I was Ozzy. And you know, I am terrible at remembering band li- like song lyrics. Oh, me Even too. though like me Sabbath too. songs, I've heard them all a million yes. times. And I just was like, I, I'll be able to learn all the lyrics. I couldn't learn all the lyrics. And it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of painful, but, <laughs> but, but it was fun. I mean, I had the fringe and, uh, but yeah, I did do Ozzy and that. Yeah, it's fun. I love it, you all. it really kind of legitimizes. I used to, because uh, Ozzy Osbourne famously had had these huge teleprompters. Mm-hmm. You know, when he'd do Ozzy, or you know, he has like huge. Like when you look at him, I feel like they're like five feet long, and you're just like, how many times has he played Iron Man? He doesn't know the lyrics to that, and then you're like, well, He's got some I mean, I wouldn't be able problems. to remember. I wouldn't be able to remember him anyway. So maybe. <laughs> I mean, wait, I don't know. Wait, who is Iron Man? <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, I am Iron Right. Okay, got it. Thank you. <laughs> Remind me again. <laughs> wait, who loves him? Oh, what, what does the wizard do again? <laughs> the wiz- oh, he walks by. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we toured together. We had some good times. Yeah. On the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a couple of things... Two, I should bring up well, as I'm in conversation with you is there. There's a couple of anecdotal things that uh, naturally, uh, anecdotal things I've gotten from you that have naturally slipped into conversation. Oh yeah, with people in my travels. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is you said that at the time you said I don't bring a sleeping bag on tour because what you figure is either going to get the best situation at the crash house or the worst. <laughs> you know. And that really made sense to me. And it's like, because it was true. I think I tried it a couple of times, but it was true. And the worst were just like, oh, I should bring my sleeping bag. But <laughs> like, but a couple of times you did get like, oh, you don't have a sleeping bag? Oh, sleep in my mom's room. Yeah, you, you get know, the bed. Get the boudoir or whatever, you know? It's like, oh, that's perfect. And then the other one is uh, you told this great story about um, Jello Biafra um, going to record stores before they close. Oh, yeah. And, and making the guy listened to all the records. <laughs> and I just love that so much, you know. Jello pulling the star card. Oh, totally. Yeah, because he, he, we would go out to record stores, like, because I would go on tour with him when he was doing Spoken Word, and he'd get to, a, like, the local record store, because Jello's, like, Jello's record collection, I can't even imagine what it is oh, now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But back gosh. then, it was, like, I mean, probably, I think him and um, Greg from Bomp Records. Um, wow. They had like the two biggest record collections sure, of like it. punk and stuff and rock and whatever. Yeah. Um, but so he was, you know, insane record collector. But yeah, he would go to these shops and be like, walk in and they're like, Jello's here. It's so cool. Yeah, sure. And right, then the right. record store closes and then he's like, he's like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll stick around, Jello. No problem. Keep, keep looking. And then 
he'll take as much as you give uh, him. Like, can we go into the basement? <laughs> it's like, then pretty soon you see the person's face go from like being super stoked on having to be out for shopping at your store to being like, when the fuck is this guy going to leave? Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I've had experience, I've, I've met, I've met him since then, and I've had experiences like we had there was a really funny moment when uh i, I was um uh i've played uh the the dirt bombs oh yeah mm-hmm. like i played bass and drums in that band a few times and um, great band oh uh, oh my god like one of those that i mean you know not to go on a different tangent but like tangent as far, uh, tangent as, but as far as like you know um being lucky to i've been so blessed to be able to to work or meet or kind of experience people that I would be like kind of my idols or whatever. And like Mick Collins would be definitely one of them on, on a variety of levels. Not only is the Gory is like an amazing band, but you know, as far as being a POC punk, um, you know, somebody who like, and, and you know, he kind of comes from like a mod, he had kind of trajectory, like being a mod and being a nerd and kind of going into this like punk garage rock world. It was really, you know, really made me feel that I could do it. And then to sort of have that come around and be friends with him and uh, and then eventually be able to play in the band. I mean, that was like a huge, huge thing. But Dirt Bombs were playing um, uh, this thing called a Bruce Cruise, uh, which was like this garage rock festival that was on I, like a, a cruise ship, which was insane um, on a variety of levels. And, and Jelly Biafra was there. And he, uh, the drummer of the drummers for uh, the Dirt Bombs works at Third Man Records. So there was this connection there where the guy, Ben, was trying to avoid Jello Biafra. And Jello would come up to each one of us like, where's Ben? I want to know where Ben is. <laughs> you know, and meanwhile, Ben is like trying to like duck away or whatever. And like, and like, hey, man, why are you trying to avoid Jello or whatever? He's like, oh, man, I have this like rare record that he wants, and he wants to trade it, and he won't let it go because I won't trade it. And and uh, so being able to talk to him then, I, it's sort of the stories that you told really came, oh, okay, yeah. It's his yeah. true passion. He, he's just the way he is. Yeah, know? I mean, he likes playing music, but I think record collecting is his right. true passion. But the life. personality, sort of relentless personality. Yeah. Like, it's almost like a caricature. It's yeah. like a character in a comic book, literally, you that's know. no joke. And that's, like, who he is. You, you don't know? get that many records without being obsessed. Right, exactly. You, know, you gotta follow the guy around the cruise ship. <laughs> exactly, you know. But, you know, and I never got, you know, and that's collecting, I could never get to that level where, you know, oh, I paid $300 for a 7-inch. Like, I could never get there, you know. I'd rather just hear it, you know. I mean, even nowadays, like, I prefer listening to vinyl, but, like, you know, straight, you know, as sort of charged and divisive as the idea of streaming is, and I worked at a place that was a digital distributor that, like, that's all I did, all all I did was put, you know, put all this music on the Spotify and stuff like that, that was my job, Um, and part of the job was convincing older people like there'd like be old soul soul musicians and old rock musicians that were putting out their own music and they were all scared of screaming you know like oh they're taking you know i work i've spent a year making this record and now everybody can listen to it for free you know and you have to be like well it's not free and the fact that it's digital is the money is being tabulated digitally so you're actually getting more money through streaming than you would be 
on college radio because those guys are reporting when they're playing a record. You know, they may be playing them to like-minded people, but you're not getting paid for that, you know, unless they report it to the FCC, which a lot of times they're not, you know. So actually, you know, Spotify and, you know, places like that, it's, it's all being tabulated and it's being paid to your publishing. So, you know, I always tell people, like, get if you have your publishing straight, like, that really is the key. You know, and once you have that and own that, if it's digital, you will get that money. You know, it's pennies. Yeah, but that's what it was paying. That was that's what it was playing your radio on the radio. You yeah, know? it's like you're getting less than that. You know, um, so yeah, I uh, I'm I'm definitely on the side of just like I just want to hear it. Most of the time, you know, there's this thing where there's so much music out there that you're almost like if you're listening to it too much, you're like, wait, am I missing something else? Like you get that kind of anxiety. It's like, am I missing something? Uh, and a conscious thing I've been doing, especially in the last couple of years is kind of going back. Cause when I was younger, like I would spend my uh, um, lunch money on a cassette at the end of the week, we'd go to like Camelot or whatever. I'd buy a tape and that was my sounds for a week. Yeah. You go deep on it. Like, I'd buy in utero and utero is the only thing I'd listen to yeah. for like two weeks. And that's really a magical time. I'd like to kind of go back to that a little more. So on things that I really like, like when I hear something magical, I, I consciously try to sit with it and um, until it isn't anymore. Cause, cause I think that's, that's what, I mean, there's so much music being made like, and people are putting their heart and soul to it. And if there is a genuineness to it, like I kind of want to give it that time, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole thing now is, is, is filtering and focusing. Right. It's, it becomes, that becomes part of the whole, the task of music appreciation. Right. Right. This filtering and taking things out and adding things in. It's uh it's a little overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it can be, I, I you know, it's like, um, do you ever watch that uh, that documentary Cosmos, the original one? Yeah, Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene in it where Carl Sagan is in a digitally restored version of the New York Public Library. Mm. Do you remember that scene at all? Yes. Yeah. So, and in it, in that, he's standing in the library, and he was just like, "Okay, this is the New York Public Library," and then he's in one room, and he was like, "These are all the books that I've read." And it's one room, one tiny room of the whole thing. And that's kind of what I equate to what we're talking about yes. now. And it's almost like, and, and I think it's very valuable to kind of go in and really experience like one artist and their trajectory. Um, a, a, a lot of like when you grow up, you know, around punks or you're learning about music, there's these certain bands that, oh, here are these um really apex points and you don't really go beyond that like for for me an example was iggy pop right and so when you're like getting into cool music or like oh listen stooges like you know fun house and raw power and you can kind of go but like kind of stops around raw power you know maybe metallic ko if you're really feeling it um but he has this whole sort of like 70s output that's amazing and it took me years to figure out right like i was like iggy pop oh iggy pop's cool it's like oh new values wait oh that's pretty cool yeah he made that oh wait sister midnight you know that's a really good song and you know it's just because i put my blinders like oh i did that okay i'm gonna move on and um another one is um i mean there's a bunch of different ones 
but uh, David Bowie is another one. I didn't endless. I didn't. I didn't discover David Bowie until after he died. I, I, I was working in a record store uh, when he passed away after Black Star, and he put out Black Star, and that was kind of a big deal. And then he passed away like a month or two later, and I remember. Like, oh, David Bowie. Now, that's kind of a bummer, man. He, he's really artist. Like, he means a lot. And, like, I was thinking about his songs. And then, like, you know, all these reissues kind of came out. And they were coming through the store. And I was just like, it's like, oh, wait, low? Like, wait, what's this? Wait, what's this? What's this? Now, David Bowie's, like, my favorite artist of all time. Yeah. But it took me 40 years yeah. to get there, you know? And it was because he passed away and all the stuff got opened up. You know, Lou Reed is another one. It's just like, oh, yeah, Velvet Underground. Oh, you're good. After Loaded, you're good. (laughs) Oh, wait, no, he kept fucking going, you know? And actually, like, that, um, just this last couple of years, during the pandemic, like, I discovered, what's that, Kill Kill City? Wait, what? Yeah. The live record, the double. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard that ever. And so it came up in, like, some feed I had, and I was like, oh, the double record or whatever. And then, like, I played it, and I was like, this is the punkest recording I've ever heard. Yes, totally. When are you going to hear like a live performance where the person's berating the audience yeah. and like literally trying to alienate you, you know? And this is a live, oh, the live record, <laughs> the live you know? Record, yeah. It's like, you know, this is a cheap trick at Budokan. This is like, no. fuck everybody, you know? And like, <laughs> it was so punk. And I was just like, oh man, you know, I just really, yeah. I really just kind of shut it down. Because I was told this this is the PowerPoint, you know, this is these are the Mojo yeah. magazine right. records you listen to, and then you don't really need to move beyond that. Um, and so we only have one lifetime, you know. Right. Where do you put your attention? Right. It's it's that's a big part of art. But what it's turning out though is that like I mean this happened to me when I was like I got really into like collecting like briefly i got really into collecting like soul records and soul 45s and you're just like oh man like rare groove trying to get into these things and getting these comps and like finding these records and then there's and this is completely glib and not really true but what this kind of realization that kind of hit me in the face was like all these bands like i really love all these bands but i don't love them as much as james brown Mm -hmm. you know and I feel like there was this thing that got into me where I was like, I'm digging and digging and digging, but I'm not getting the same feeling I do when I'm listening to James Brown, you know? And a lot of these bands are trying to sound like James Brown or whatever James Brown is getting into. Now, there's perfect examples of where a band, like a weird single or a band one time did this amazing thing that nobody else is doing and you can collect it. But uh, for the most part, it really was like that. Same thing with like Nuggets. Like, Like, oh, you listen to Nuggets, you're like, wow, these guys are just trying to sound like the Yardbirds. Like, every one of them, you know? That's what it sounded like to me. So, like, in my mind, I try to be really careful, you know, about that. About, um, you know, spending too much time, like, getting into something. I mean, a a perfect example is, like, horror. Like, (laughs) horror movies. Like, I can't get into horror movies. Um, I get scared easily. That's part of it. But... I know that if I'm like, I'm into horror, that's going to be a completely <laughs> huge journey. Because yeah. I know people into horror movies, yeah. and they have like stacks of DVDs, and they can tell you all the stuff. And it's just like a completely, a piece of your life you have to give to in order to be really into it. Yep. So it's like, I think I'm constantly trying to be careful of what I'm getting into. But, you know, there's also that quote, like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Yep. You know, like spreading yourself out, like, you know... 
like you don't really get deep into things if you're you're trying to whack a mole like all these different things you're cool things you're trying to like glean from um so i mean you know it's a constant i mean it's something i mean water water everywhere like i can't really complain that there's all this stuff to sort of absorb but it's you know you got to be careful especially like you know being a dad you know having new sets of responsibilities and stuff like the time is so valuable like what you're going to give to so it's it's like when me and my partner like want to stream something it's very strategic it's like okay well it's got to be a good show it's got to be really good you know yeah we only have this set of time this is this is our hour every night to hang out you know so it's like it's all i'll just i'll just you know i try not to let it it doesn't feel overwhelming just because i'm like sort of like meditating on making sure that the right things are coming yeah. through, you know, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it is an art, the art of, of appreciation. Of right. Art. Right. You know, in movies, I, I often will go, I'm just going to go back and study Kubrick films, you know, and mm-hmm. because he's the greatest, he's the pinnacle there's ever been. Right. So I can't go wrong with devoting myself to just appreciating Stanley Kubrick, which actually I have a funny story. I, my niece who's 14, I was hanging with her this weekend and, uh, we were talking about horror films and I was like, well, have you seen the shining? She's like, no, it's like, you've never seen the shining. Wow. It's the greatest horror film of all time. And so we watched it and she totally didn't like it. She's yeah. like, she's like, it's just music and a guy yelling. Mm. And I was like, very subtle. <laughs> I thought it was really funny that I was like, that's your review of the shining, a guy yelling with a lot of music. Right. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I was like, you should watch it again later in your life. See, see if you appreciate it on a different level. That I'm like, it's, it's art. It's subjective. Right. She was looking at her phone half the time, too. But, you know, it's just funny, though. But, she, but then the thing that's crazy, she loved 2001. I'm like, right. you have the patience and yeah. sophistication to appreciate 2001, but you don't like The Shining. Right. Whatever. Right. And The Shining gets... The Shining does get, like, like maybe overhyped in a way. And it is subtle in all of the perfect ways. I, I sort of like there's a thing I run into with some bands like um Spaceman Three is a perfect mm-hmm. example of this. Like I love Spaceman Three. And the people that I know that love Spaceman Three really love that band. But have you ever tried to describe that band to somebody yeah, and right. try to get them into it? There's no descriptors for the band <laughs> that make them sound attractive in any way, <laughs> shape or form. Yeah. Like, oh, what do they sound like? Oh, well, their songs are like they only wrote like five songs and they're super long and it's very like kind of depressing and not really recorded that well. You know, there's all these sort of <laughs> all the things you can throw it's out. A badly there's, recorded song that has one riff and it goes for 54 minutes. You should check them out. Oh yeah, they're really great. <laughs> and it's sort of like they're all junkies too. And yeah, like, you know, junkies. There's nothing yeah. about it that's very like appealing. But you know, uh, and I think it's th- that happens with movies all the time. The Shining's a perfect example. Yeah. Like you know, like oh well, is this really? It's about this person going crazy. It's like. Not a lot of dialogue. And, there is know, a lot of so. yelling. Um, do you think he filmed the moon landing? Oh, you know, no, I don't think th- I don't think he did. I've been, I, uh, one thing that's been happening, like the every once in a while uh, in my feed, in my YouTube, in my social media, like flat Earth comes up, yes, and the moon landing comes up mm-hmm. every once in a while. Are you buying into the the the, the theory of that he filmed the moon mm-hmm. landing? Well, I mean, there's just so. You know, when you watch or read certain things, there's there's a case for both. Right. Right. You know, like, why didn't we go back there? 
Yeah. Like, you know, the you know, the radiation belt they talk about. It's like, oh wait, they, they flew a tin can. I don't know much about it. Well, there's this radiation belt. It's named after somebody. But apparently between here and the moon there is there's this intense radiation like like orb around us mm-hmm. that you have to break through to mm-hmm. get to the moon. Um, right at the tip of our atmosphere. And like the idea is if basically we flew a tin can through that a few times that's what they're how'd that work that's that's what they're Mm -hmm. trying to tell us so you know when you learn about stuff like that you're like well yeah we didn't really go back and it seems like the timing of it was very interesting you know the space race or relationship with russia and stuff like that it's like oh it's very convenient that we did this at that time and it really affected how the world was sort of operating after that um but then there's these other sides of it too that are like like Neil deGrasse Tyson had the sort of, he had the best argument for us going mm-hmm. that like really sat with me like it was a uh, it would be harder to do to produce all of the information and that we have mm-hmm. to fake it it would it would take way more to fake mm-hmm. fake it with all the stuff that we've seen and we have and we can present to actually go there yeah so to me that makes sense that kind of like okay we went but then like you know then you see like um what's that movie the room room two three seven two three seven yeah. which have you seen because that's the movie where they go through all the mm-hmm. the the little what do yeah. you call them thing uh, little like easter eggs or whatever easter eggs that's yeah, what yeah. i was looking for yes and like um well and then when they really break it all down like there's you know, because the basic idea of it is that it's an admission by yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Right. The Shining is him saying that he filmed the Moonlight. Right. You know? And that was specifically The Shining. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I got to watch that again. <coughs> Room 233? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's very, I mean, that's one part. That's one theory they kind of break down. It's like a series of theories. But the Moon Landing one is like, when you watch that stuff, it's pretty interesting. Uh, 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 one part that sits with me about it is, you know, they talk about how Stanley Kubrick was so meticulous when he, like, he basically storyboarded every second of every film. And every little detail in the film. Right. And everything you see means means something. Um, And when you watch the making of The Shining, there's, they're basically trying to posit in that, that he's, Stanley Kubrick would see something, be like, oh, give me the handheld, you know? And he was yeah. like, kind of like, a lot of stuff was off the cuff. Yeah. You know, and they kind of, when they set up the scenes, they're just like, oh, hey, this is a cool room, let's go in here. Like, they're kind of making it seem like he was just kind of making it, which goes against how he made every other movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that, that was like, oh, that's a, that seems a little suspicious. And then when they do break down the whole thing, like, you know, the, the room number, the carpet... Yeah, you know, uh, like the typewriter, like yeah. all this sort of stuff. Danny's you're, sweater. You're like, well, if he is meticulous, that could be, could be some sort of not necessarily admission, but maybe something related to the moon landing that he was commenting on. Like that could have been part of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think all this conspiracy stuff is like kind of just people have free time. I mean, the interesting thing about the internet is, is. Like, I don't know if it's made people smarter. Like, the internet is just kind of, like, exacerbated people's, like, nat- like natural tendencies, you know? Well, it's like what we were talking about with music appreciation. The overwhelming 
amount of what's available to you. Like, yeah. Who can sort through that? And I mean, I, it's no surprise at all that it drives reality, that it makes reality into this completely plastic thing that can be shaped. Right. And in, in a, I mean, it's right. always been that way to some extent, but now it's like you can live in a completely unique reality, so information world. Right. You know. But I think the way people use information, like, you know, you know, the whole like uh like Twitter and like sort of Fox News, like kind of this weird thing that gets like regurgitated, like people are so reactive and people are so quick to believe something now if it fits in yeah. with like whatever belief they decided on. Confirmation bias, yes. So and like but in like and really quick to do it. You yeah. know, it's like when you see I mean Twitter is like the fucking bowels of society, so it's like stupid even references, but you know, just like through elections and stuff like that, like this whole thing that went through we went through with Trump, right? And how like, you know, the media that you're chosen, like progressive outlets are just like pointing out like all these like you know, all the shit that he does or whatever and amplifying everything he says. And then, you know, once Biden won, like there's a shift now, like people talking shit about, oh, Biden does this and Biden does. And it wasn't even like right wing people. Like, like, it was sort of instant, like all these left, all the lefties wanted Trump to lose. And then when he did lose, now Biden is not doing these other things, you know? Yeah. So it's a, but, and it was like a really decisive shift. So it made me feel like, I mean, you know, everything's a con, right? But I feel like, oh, like, I feel like we're all pulling in together, but I feel like I was just sort of, there's this media thing influencing how these elections, these people are going to go. And now it's like, everything's flipped, like Biden's the president. And now like the sort of like right wing underbelly is just being fueled by these things. And they don't even care. And it's like very the hypocrisy is so blatant, but at the same time, like they don't even care what it is. It's like, Oh, Biden's a crook. And it's like, well, wait, your guy's a crook. It's a proven crook. It's not about that anymore. Yeah. We've, we've moved past it. It's now it's just pure. I mean, I think that's part of the whole fascist playbook is to have reality just be so shredded, you know, that, that it's like, it's just completely overwhelming. What can you even do in the face of it? There's, two totally separate realities that people right. live in. I mean, just this morning I was reading some article and just one of those little things where it was about CPAC and and at the end there was a guy talking saying, you know, Trump is a genius and he's the greatest person and I love him because he's just such an honest and, you know, person right. who puts yes. everyone ahead of him. It's almost engineered to drive you insane. Totally. Just must relax and not... Well, <laughs> it's just so strange. There's this, like, there's this... uh the internet troll phenomenon like on, and the thing is like what happens on social media is if you pay the internet trolls, any amount of attention, they just stay in your feed, you know, yes, yeah. like everything that come up and there, oh, yeah, you can't have any, there, there's a couple of people that they just say like everything that happens in the media, right. They say the worst possible thing. Yes. You could say about it just to say, yeah, yeah. like, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, Trump is the most honest person in the world. Like, you know, he's, like, yeah. busted for something, and you're like, oh, he's the most honest person ever. And you're just like, there's no way you can believe that, even if you support you, you, him. You, you know? just don't know. But then all these people are like, you know, 10,000 likes, you know? And, like, yeah. that career, that person's career has a career on Twitter. Yeah. You know, just because people are just sort of, like, liking what they say. And, you know, this is, you know, and everybody, now the new thing with, like, progressive media, it's like, oh, we're objective or whatever. It's like, 
it's hard to know what it's hard to know really what is objective anymore you know i mean i do know i mean my whole stance is is that like there's no point how could we live in 2023 and you still have the mindset that there are some people that shouldn't exist in this world yeah it's horrifying like how did you learn that like even if you are like evangelical well, or we, whatever but when you say that like it's 2023 that's something that i hear people say a lot like it's 2023 how are we still and i'm like there it progress is not linear there's not something right. that just because time goes by that right. we're suddenly smarter or better or you know that that's just not i think it's just we're always the same everybody's got their reality it's shaped by these forces beyond them and there's puppet masters and uh, there's systems like in nature where it reaches a certain apex and then it must collapse. Uh, things, things. It's this idea that we're moving towards this enlightened thing that's coming. It's like, no, there's just pockets. It's more like mushrooms popping up here and there. Occasionally there's this little blossom that, that dies and then something mm-hmm. else blossoms over there. I feel like the, if you look at the face of the earth at any given time in human history, it's heaven and hell. You know, there's places that are absolute hell yeah. and places that are pretty awesome. Yeah. And they are shifting and changing and one yeah. pops up there and one dies out. But that's just the nature of reality. No but, tree grows to heaven. But isn't like the idea, I mean, the idea of like technology is that like we're like the consciousness, the spectrum of the consciousness is supposed to, you know, the age of information like you know what i'm saying is how do we how do you have access to all the information and still come to the conclusion that this group of people needs to go away or like you know i mean cuz you know what i'm talking about is people that are going back to talking about you know this is what we believe and we need a, like our own s- state of mind or physical state where you know we like christianity or whatever religion is we only believe like this one thing and it never like progresses and you know i mean kind of what you're saying is that you know we're like time isn't linear so what you're saying is that like like humanity isn't getting better it's just we're just chimpanzees with better toys that's kind of weird Chimpanzees with better toys. I don't know what I was saying. This is the uh, big edit in the towards the end that I talked about in the introduction. We're listening in the background. This is Christopher Sutton's Baby Ornette off his cassette. You brought me back from the dead. On Antiquated Future, cassettes out of Portland, Oregon, where I am today. So, yeah, um, I took out a big chunk here. Like I said, it's about two hours of existential talk. I don't want to release a four-hour podcast. I, it's just not my... It's not the Traeger method. Chris will be a repeat guest. We talked about that as we parted after this one. I'm going to have him back many times. We barely barely scratched the surface. So anyways... Um, yeah, on with the conversation. An hour and a half later. Now that we're um, nearing the end here, mm-hmm. you have this beautiful cassette, Selected mm-hmm. Songs by Christopher Sutton. It's a beautiful package. It's also online. Tell, tell us about this. Selected Songs, 1998, 
2019. Yeah, so um, a label called Antiquated Furniture put out this lovely cassette. Um, they reached out to me, and they were mainly looking for songs, because I've been in a, like a ton of different types of bands, solo bands, bands with other people. Give us a list of, we didn't even get to so many of the bands that you, I mean, give us a right, list of your highlights. Right, right. I mean, I was going to say we should do this again. Yeah, yeah, cause, okay. Uh, for sure. So Because yeah, I mean, there's a whole like... I mean, because there's a, like a lot of stuff, like my time with the gossip. I mean, there's a lot of yeah, yeah. Let's a, let's, let's leave it there. A, a lot of life story stuff that we could spend another we will couple have, hours on. But with this, so but we'll I will have you on many times. I but, love talking with you. Oh no, man! This has been by, this has been a fucking blast. By the way, Always. you know. Um. So and and literally a dream come true. Like I, I created this with my with my mind. <laughs> yes. This, this interaction. <laughs> It's an expression of love. Um, but the tape is so. Um, I they they reached out to me is um, and they put together this, uh, this tape collection. It's mostly like home recordings that I did. Uh, a couple of things like you know I was in a band called Spider in the Webs with our mutual friend Toby Vale, also a guest of Trigger Method. Yes. Um, and uh, so she we would uh, a couple of them are from like zines that we would put together like home recordings and and stuff like that and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dogs are going nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a, we have a, uh, my partner's sister coming through. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's a, uh, just a collection of home recordings that I did, um, like really early. I mean, the most kind of cool stuff about it is, um, I, when I was in Dub Narcotic, um, we, uh, there was a horrible van wreck that we were in. Oh God, that's um, a story. Yeah. And that's another story that I would definitely like to get into next time. Cause that was a whole transformative thing for me as well. Um, but, um, you know, I have to give a shout out to my friend, James Maeda, who during that time when I was recovering, um, he, he would come over and, uh, and he would literally put a guitar in my hand and I wasn't a guitar player before. I wasn't really interested in playing any other instruments besides bass really, or drums. And so uh, he was, during that time of recovery, he was coming over and really encouraging me to write songs and put music together and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of the the songs in this collection are from that period. But it was all like, I, you know, I'm a very collaborative person. Like the, the things that I'm really, that really sink my teeth into are bands and collaborations and things like that. Um, so whenever that kind of happens, I kind of get away from what I'm doing by myself. Um, so a lot of this is stuff like that, like, like home, like punk recordings. There's a couple, you know, I was really trying to manipulate like drum machines and things like that. Uh, so just all the lo-fi stuff that I was doing in between all of the bands, like, you know, I've been in, you know, I've been lucky enough to play in the Dirt Bombs. Like I said, I was in Spider in the Webs. My solo band was Hornet Leg, um, which is the band that's kind of, like whenever I have songs or something to put together, like, a, you know, I've been able to collect a group of friends and put together records and things like that. And so th- that stuff is out on K and all that stuff. But um, a lot of this was just really like on hard drives and things that I'd kind of like more or less forgot about or whatever. So it was, it was really, really cool. It was a cool period of time for them to be like, Hey, what else do you have? and me to put together a lot of that stuff. Uh, some of it was like, you know, I started making like a solo record, like, like after, um, Hornet Lake had slowed down. And that was a few recordings with my friends, um, you know, who were in this band called the Shivas, they, a uh, local band from Portland and they, I recorded at their house. And so, uh, it's just, a, uh, it's kind of, it's really, 
yeah, it's sort of like the real, like kind of me, like it's a very, very personal kind of like stuff that I like, didn't think anyone would listen to and it's stuff I wasn't listening to at all. But uh, And it's so good. I've been cool. listening to this. And it's on Spotify as well. It's on Spotify. Yeah. And it's so good. There's this like all the flavors. You got dub and garage Ooh. rock, British invasion, uh, 60s punk, punk punk. Uh, it's it just got so much in there. And it's just, it's really good listening. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, when I listen to that stuff, I think about how, how fun it was to make that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I always love creating, you know, I mean, um, you know, I work for this uh, website called The Ringer, which uh, pr- produces primarily um, uh, podcasts. So I'm a, I'm a professional podcast producer for Spotify, basically. And um, I really tie in that work with, uh, with with the zine stuff that I was doing, because I was really into making zines and putting together like uh, just material like art and collages and stuff like that and putting together audio files is like right in there that same kind of thing so i'm I'm, i love content all types of content like movies records and things like that um you know um so yeah this is just a kind of another extension and just so it was really cool to be able to like unearth that and make it real like in front of me because it really was this kind of like memories and like oh i i did that kind of thing you know or but the stuff that I really sort of fall back on is the stuff I put together that were in bands, like, you know, that went on tour or something like that. That was more of a real thing. Um, but but like know. all artists, you're just constantly creating and making. Oh, totally. Yeah. But I'm inspired by like everything. Like, yeah. you know, any new sound, you know, it's like talking about chasing sounds. It's like metal clinking together. Or like, you know, if you see somebody play or, you know, a band or if I see like an artist or, or movie or see some sort of visual immediately i'm just like how do i do that right like i want to learn how to craft that like one of my guilty pleasures is like uh cooking tiktok Mm -hmm. you know so there's all these like home cooks and weird foragers on tiktok that i follow and it's so cool it's like i haven't really moved into into doing that too much but it's inspired me like oh i want to like cook i want to like pickle shit you know (laughs) like you know so it's like I really enjoy being inspired and circling back to where we're from, Olympia, you know, the greatest gift I ever had was like being able to go downtown and something else inspire me. There's always like a show or a band or an idea that was kind of floating around or a person that was just coming, you know, would come through or just, you know, invigorate, you know, our scene for lack of a better word. And it was kind of constant and, it really made me kind of be on my toes. Like it was very like my idea of mod when, you know, I called myself a mod was like, it was like people really paying attention to the avant-garde, like paying attention to art, no matter what it was. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to have a bunch of friends that were into that too. So it was very like encouraging. So the spectrum on that tape was just like, Oh man, I'm really into like scientists and King Tubby or whatever, you know? So I'm going to like, like that's all I'm listening to. So I think I have this sort of thing or like, you know, I just discovered like, you know, New York post-punk, you know, in like the early eighties, it's like, Oh man, they were like punk and disco. This is great. You know? And I want to make something like that. I mean, for the most part, what really comes out, like when I'm really playing is guitar. I love guitar music, whether it be punk or rock or anything like that. So that's kind of what what mostly comes out when it comes down to it. But I've been lucky enough to 
collaborate and, and, you know, be influenced and have like my moment with different styles. So that's oh, really yeah. what that is. Yeah. This is a great representation of those, Thank those you. Uh, many flavors. Yeah. It's really great. Okay. Um, I hope a lot of people listen to the Spotify playlist and get this cassette. Thank you so much, Chris. That's my girlfriend calling. <laughs> She's like, where the hell are you? Yeah, totally. I'm just talking about the nature of existence with my friend. Um, yeah, but please, let's do, let's do this again. I mean, I have so much oh, more no question. to talk about. I love this conversation this and all this type of stuff. This is part one of many. Love yes, it. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you so much. I love much. you. I love you, man. Totally. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. coming over. Thanks for having me.